I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. I love music, chanting, singing. It's a big part of my life and my spiritual practice, sadhana. It's a big part of Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism also, as well as Hinduism and other spiritual traditions, as one well knows. Sacred music, sound, sacred sound, shabd in Sanskrit. Sacred music is an important part of most, almost all of the spiritual traditions of this world. It may not be for everybody. People have different affinities. But I find that it really gets me out of my head and into my heart and into my solar plexus and vibrates the diaphragm and clears out the cobwebs and raises the energy and is fun also and gets me going. So whether you sing in the shower where nobody can see or hear so you feel freer because you're naked or you can more recognize the naked state no matter what you're covered with throughout the day and sing or sing in your own way or dance or create or garden, you know, kneel in the sun like it's a cathedral and bow to the, in the earth with your hands in the dirt, gardening you know, or whatever activity you're engaged in could be. Tara's activity, Buddha activity. No separation between the sacred and the mundane. But that takes some practice and some getting used to. Many people, many of us, don't necessarily even know that there's a sacred world. We don't believe in God or a higher power or enlightenment, heaven, nirvana, or anything other than what they can see and touch and hear about on TV, mostly in captions or the CNN crawl. So those of us who may have an affinity 
for the spiritual dimension of life. The, if I say invisible, it's starting to sound airy-fairy, but you know what I'm talking about? Not just the material and visible solidness. We can start to feed that side, nurture that side of ourselves. At least so it comes into balance with the other side, which we're always feeding, and our upbringing mostly has nurtured the visible material, get ahead in the world, be someone side of things. So we've been chanting Tara's mantra, the female Buddha, the personification of the sacred feminine energy, the feminine principle, the yin, whatever you want to call it, within us all, not just female, but feminine energy, the receptive, the holder, the embracer, like the earth, not just the masculine energy driving forward to enlightenment or preapically sticking up in the air like a tower to heaven or a ladder to enlightenment, as some think of it. The feminine energy, so-called receptive, being, not doing. Doing in this dichotomy is more masculine, being, not feminine. So Dzogchen is muchly associated with this feminine kind of tantra. Of course, non-dual. And therefore, just for example, just to make the point, for those of you who study these things, Buddhism, Himalayan Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, the protector of Dzogchen tradition is female, is imaged as female. Of course, there's no gender in the absolute, but Ekajati is female, the main Dharma protector or guardian of the Dzogchen tradition, if you get into the Buddhist iconography, Himalayan Buddhism. Ekajati, the female protector, pointing out that it's not all about doing, that you can rely on being also and rest in being. That could be the greatest protection circle. Ekajati, imaged with one eye and one boob for her only child, oneself, and one hair plate, one plated, whatever that's called, plate of hair, and one of everything, very interesting, image of oneness, of non-duality, in this ancient timeless image of the guardian or protector of Dzogchen. One taste, non-duality, unitary vision. So there's many things to talk about in the world of Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, iconography, Buddhas and bodhisattvas, dakas and dakinis, dharma protectors, and other beings of the many realms of existence. But that's not our subject here. What is our subject here? <laughs> oh yes, Dzogchen. View meditation in action, our practice. Naked awareness practice. Seeing through, being through. Treasured in Tibetan that we're practicing in the form of sky-gazing, pure presence, presencing, and so forth. So we're practicing the sky-gazing. We began with some breathing exercises and ended with chanting, as I've discussed before, bracketing the main part of the session, the silent meditation, the naked awareness, the sky-gazing, the awareness of awareness, naked meditation, naked awareness, pure presencing, meditation called in Dzogchen non-meditation or unmeditation, undoing the habit of overdoing, getting used to being, 
not always relying on doing, strategizing, thinking, achieving, and becoming, but plumbing the depths of being, of as it is, of the naturalness as the way, as is said in the scriptures, Dzogchen scriptures, Zen scriptures, and others. That's actually a quote from the Zen scriptures. Naturalness is the way, and the way is the, it's the great way with a capital W. So that says a hell of a lot. But how to practice and rehearse naturalness? That's the koan. That's the challenge. But who can argue with naturalness as being innate? Which is why we talk about Buddha nature and all these things as innate. This is not a belief. Who can argue about health coming from outside, from medicine? No, health doesn't come from medicine. Health comes from inside. Medicine helps restore health, right? It cures disease, which is extra, right? Health is innate. And spiritual health is innate, too. And this Dzogchen tradition introduces that, points that out, and works on us realizing that, helps us to work on realizing that. It's a little different than teachings that propound that we're evil, sinful, ruined from the beginning. Of course, it's very rare to find such a teaching, but we think that the story of the, uh, Christianity in the garden is like that. Actually, we could have quite a different interpretation with the eye of Dzogchen, like Eve bit the apple of knowledge, of dualism. But before that, the primordial state was there, which is still there underneath it all. You with me? So it's really not original sin. But that's not my subject. I'm just enjoying the depths and, and vastness of Dzogchen, how it can be applied to understanding anything, really. This is not a teaching about how we're so obscured and deluded and defiled and we have to purify and, and stay in the washer-dryer for many, many lifetimes of going around and around and tumbling and doing all the tumblings and bowings and mudras and yantras and tantras and yantras and mantras and mudras and samayas and dharanis and all the other things I can't remember that don't rhyme. It sounds like a hell of a lot of work, doesn't it? like a washer and dryer that has too many speeds and other things to do. And then sometimes it gets broken because you're fiddling with it too much. And then what? Well, Dzogchen has a different approach. As I mentioned in the first night Dharma talk, I always reveal it all on the first night, but it doesn't mean one always hears it. In Dzogchen, it's like playing basketball with a court that's bigger than the hoop. No, with a hoop that's bigger than the court. You can't miss this naturalness. And yet it's subtle. What did somebody say yesterday? It's simple, but not necessarily easy. Why isn't it easy? Because we're so conditioned. That's what karma means, conditioning. We're so stuck. The ruts of our habits are so deep. So with spiritual practice in general, in the gradual path, climbing the path from below up, as we discussed yesterday on the left side of the board, in the gradual path, progressive path, reconditioning, making new habits, good habits instead of bad habits, cleaning up our act, cultivating virtues rather than vices, and so forth, reconditioning and eventually deconditioning. As the new habits are less deeply ingrained, we're less stuck in ruts, eventually being free. We get out of the Grand Canyon of our usual confusion and delusion, stuckness and despair hopelessness, and make positive habits. But even those are still habits. 
freedom is yet to be attained. So whether we rise or fall in the wheel of existence, that is still not freedom and liberation, total deconditioning, or the unconditioned, as Buddhist theology calls it. One with karma, no self, one with karma. So in this teaching, everything is pure and perfect from the first, meaning the Garden of Eden right now, underneath it all. Eve may have bitten the apple, but we don't have to relive that every moment. We're free not to bite. When the apple is offered, when the apple is offered, we're free now in the moment to bite or not to bite. Is that a choice? Do we have to bite? To bite. I feel a Shakespearean coming on. To bite or not to bite. Is that the question? Yes. That's the question. Who cares about Eve? Fuck Eve. <laughs> and all the this multiplications from Eve. To bite or not to bite? Oh, fish. Mmm, nice, smelly worm. Maybe have a nibble, but don't bite and swallow it hook, line, and sinker and get hooked and pull out of your element, pulled off your Buddha seat. I hope it's clear what I just said, because I can't necessarily say it again so precisely. <laughs> the bait comes in through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. We feel things. We react. We want. We don't want, which is really the same desire and aversion, just pushing and pulling like an automatic door, whether it opens in or out, it's going to be the same. Exhausting ourselves, pushing and pulling. So to bite or not to bite, that's a choice and we can make. Sometimes we do bite and we should bite. If the children run into the street, we should scream, shout and leap. That's biting the, the apple of knowledge, knowing there's something wrong. And it's up to you to do something about it. This is not advocating passivity or being lobotomized. But not biting every time and not getting hooked and pulled out of your element. Not swinging every pitch, as they say in baseball. Aware of arisings and choosing how, when, and if to respond being proactive rather than purely reactive, being choiceful rather than having no choice, just blind reaction. So this is the inner freedom we're talking about. That's why it's said that it's not what happens to us or out of circumstances, but how we react to it that makes all the difference. One of the most famous pithy instructions of the Mahamudra lineage comes from the great master Talobapa. He said to Naropa, this, this has come down to us 1,100 years through the practicing lineage of Milarepa. It's not outer things that entangle us in the rope, but it's inner attachment and fixation which, is, which entangles us. So that's the direction to look for freedom, for relief from our entanglements and, and afflictions. Not out, but at our own attachments and fixations, attraction, attachment, and aversion, and so forth. It's a very profound teaching. It takes two to tangle, like Velcro, the hooks and the loops. If we don't provide the loop, the hook gets nothing. We don't get stuck. Or maybe we're the hook, since we're kind of getting hooked. I don't know. Anyway, it takes the both to, to, to Velcro eyes.
So in this practice, cultivating this pure presence, non-reactive, open, aware, these are kind of the qualities of Dzogchen meditation. Openness, awareness, not just empty-minded, not just blank, not asleep, not in a coma, not comatose, not blotto, not oblivious. Openness and aware. As my Dzogchen master, Tugorgen Rinpoche, whose sons come here and teach sometimes, Selkni Rinpoche, Chikinima Rinpoche, etc., Minja Rinpoche, middle-aged lamas from Nepal. As the master of masters, Tugorgen Rinpoche used to say, it's like a sunlit space, a sunlit room, not just an empty room. A sunlit room, luminous, yet spacious. It can accommodate, there's room, roomy, yet lucid, luminous. So openness, awareness, relaxation, spontaneity, flow, clarity, letting go, letting be, and so forth. In one way, it all sounds the same, but it's actually different facets of the same jewel of practice. And notice what's not here. It doesn't say concentration. It doesn't say radiating light rays. It doesn't say anything about divine sound or mantra chanting or visualizing Buddhas or mandalas or praying for world peace or radiating loving kindness and compassion. We might do it at the end of the session. We might even spend weeks or months in retreat doing those practices. Right here, we're concentrating on just Dzogchen meditation practice. And these are some of the characteristics or principles or qualities of it. Perspicacity means insightfulness. So not just sitting there, being here now, but also having some insight into cause and effect, into what's what. Not just the nature of things, but also how they function and interdepend and interconnect. If you're a student of Buddhism, the first step on the Eightfold Path is right view or wise view, seeing things as they are, not as they ain't. That's wisdom in Buddhism, seeing things as they are, not as they ain't. And that implies seeing it as it is and also understanding something about it. Causation or emptiness, transparency, impermanence, and so on not just reflecting like a mirror that has no insight. So when we're practicing, we're not just sitting there doing nothing. We're actually in a dynamic state, a dynamic presence of mind. If you are Christian-minded, if you read the Western mystics like Simone Weil of France, she might call it prayer. She gives prayer this definition. She lived around World War II. She's a well-known mystic who wrote, I forget what, with God in the title. A few books about God. She says, prayer is undivided, undiluted attention. Like pure, unadulterated attention. So that's our practice. For a Christian like her, that's a kind of a mystical prayer. Not an asking for something prayer, but that's like a mystical prayer. Like Christian centering prayer is taught by the contemporary saint, Father Thomas Keating, who teaches here once a year. Christian centering prayer, being in the presence of God, not asking God for something like he's Santa Claus. Christian centering prayer, they call it. So we're not just sitting here doing nothing. It's a very dynamic, lively, lucid, centerless openness. 
luminous, lucid, attentive, and so forth, insightful, equanimous, equal to whatever appears, not ignoring it, not indifferent or complacent, very interested actually, almost curious, like paying attention, like, ah, that's what Imaho means, kind of wondrous, it's like a child, ah, I never saw that before, wow, ah, Imaho. Every moment is fresh. We're the ones that act like, like jaded old fools. Oh, been there, done that, seen that. Isn't there anything else? What's next? Oh, now we learned about Dzogchen. What's next? And so forth. Worshiping the new. Well, let's turn that over. Everything is new. Worship everything equally. And the new gets old as soon as it's there. So everything is it, really. So in this freshness, this effervescent awareness, riding the wave of nowness, this bubbling effervescent nowness, not trying to build up time, not think about quality, quantity, more about the quality of presence of awareness, the wisdom factor, not just effort and duration and quantity. So in this meditation session, first we began with the breathing exercises from the six yogas, Tibetan tradition of the six Vajrayana yogas, six energy yogas. We're practicing a little of that every morning, led by Judy Ricci. And then we had the main session, and in the main session of the sky, we, we chanted, ah, to open and relax and release, rather than some longer mantras. And after the eyeing, then just sky gazing, <sighs> seeing through, being through, undoing the habit of overdoing, cultivating a wakefulness, relying, excuse me, on innate wakefulness, not trying to build up concentration, aware of whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind continuum in the present moment, and letting it go, letting it come and go a pain in the body, aware of it, and letting it go. If it continues, letting it come again, letting it go, not trying to drive it away. A sound, somebody sneezes, or there's a truck sound or something. Hearing is just hearing, nothing to listen to or think about, no one hearing it, as Buddha said. In seeing, just seeing, nothing to look at or look for, no one seeing it. Just the process, seeing. Just naked experience, unmediated by thoughts and concepts, including me and mine, not to mention I like it and I dislike it. You see, that's already become more than secondary, tertiary, and more, further away from the direct, unmediated experience. In hearing, just hearing, and that's enough, and that's it. And that's the appropriate functioning of the senses and the sense consciousnesses. And then we can choose whether to think about it or not. Here we're choosing not to analyze things. At another time at work, perhaps, you might. Or in between sessions, you might. And we can always choose that option. We went to school, we learned that option. We did not learn this option very much. Some of us may have in some circumstance or other, but not mainly. 
like resting in the right side of the brain rather than always in the linear, strategic, act, hyperactive, rational left side of the brain, the thought center. But the right side, more the intuition, the gestalt, the holistic, the all at onceness, the messy emotional part, not just the rational, spick and span engineering part of the brain. So that we have some balance, not just so we stay in the right side of the brain all the time, we're in the non-doing being also, not just staying in that either. But here, just experiencing a little of that to undo the habit of overdoing, to get used to naturalness as a way to learn to relax and yet be dynamically present. Interested, emo, wondrous. Ah. The Zen masters in Korea, they teach everything arises. You say, what's this? What's this? Not to think about it. It's called the huado. It's like a koan. You're just like, what? Like, it's, it, I don't really translate that as what's this. My translation is, what the fuck? Because <laughs> that's not a what's this. Let's have a discourse on a, a science of it. It's like, what? <laughs> and then the next thing, what? Chukyanima Rinpoche of Nepal, who teaches here once a year, he said, when somebody says, how do you practice Mahamudra, which is Dzogchen's sister practice. So here, let's just say, how do you practice this meditation? This is his description. I'm sorry, you can't see my hands, but this is his answer. And he's a very learned Kempo, an avid professor, as well as a meditator and stuff. But this was his answer. And I thought, oh, it's like a bird electrocuted on a wire. <laughs> ah! But that's the moment of Dzogchen. And then you start making stories about it. That's not Dzogchen. That's thinking and storytelling and analyzing, and maybe it's science, psychology. You know, there's a time for that. But this is a time of Dzogchen. How close to the moment, direct, immediate experience can we be? Which we already are, but we're so obscured about it, overlooking it. Where else can we be, actually? So this is the path from which one can never fall or deviate once you grok it, and it becomes part of yourself. So that's why I like it. I love it. Sogchen is more fun, as I always say. My own Sogchen mentor, Nyosho Kempo Rinpoche, like to call it Nyur Day Zogpachempa, which is a saying in Tibetan. Nyurwa means quick, fast, direct. Dewa means comfy, cozy, delightful. So who doesn't want fast and direct? And who doesn't want comfy, cozy, delightful? I sort of thought hand go up over there. <laughs> I was surprised. Ah, what the fuck? <laughs> And that's in distinction, that's distinct from the usual teachings of spiritual traditions, especially Indian spiritual traditions about austerities and fasting and other things, or hard practice. It doesn't mean there's not a time for that, but this is another time. This is the time of Dzogchen to see if we can experience this kind of enjoyment, enjoying, appreciating. The joy of meditation, appreciating everything as it is, beyond liking and disliking. Enjoying the shit, which, we, which is good. If you can't shit, you're in trouble. 
and enjoying the good stuff, the flowers and, and the, you know, the bird song and so on. Appreciating everything as it is, beyond good and bad. And yet still we can discriminate in life between virtue and vice, good and bad, helpful and harmful, and so forth. So in the meditation itself, we had a little tune-up again with the shocking shouting and the self-inquiry, looking into who or what is experiencing one's own experience, turning towards the source of all this projections and radiance, as we say, rather than looking outward for answers or at things, looking at the looker, perceiving the perceiver, seeing through the seer. You know, it's hard to turn around fast enough to catch it. But you don't have to turn around because it's right in front of you. And you can just look in the mirror of emptiness and you'll see it. And see through your limited self. Seeing through yourself is seeing Buddha, being Buddha. There's no Buddha outside. That's why it says in the Zen teachings, if you meet Buddha on the road, kill him. Of course, Zen Buddhism is a Buddhist tradition. There's prohibition against killing. But this is the one case where if, if you think Buddha is outside, you should kill that kind of Buddha. That's the point. If you think Buddha is inside, that's a, probably equally illusory. So any questions or sharing, please? Evelyn, hi. Did I see you? Put up your hand. No? Okay. Oh, you're such a Zen master. That hand went up, but it wasn't hers. That's what she meant. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, yes, hi. Hello. Um, my name's Venus, and um, hey, I'm Venus. hopefully I'm not... Uh, I don't want to keep going over and over the same thing. No, go ahead. I ask you a question. It pulls on both... Um, what this lady and this um, young man were talking about. And uh, so I'm trying not to get emotional. I'm a very emotional person. But um, it's okay. just... Take a breath. No hurry. Knowing, how do you know that you're actually on the middle path? I don't know if that sounds like a really stupid question. That's but a It's like, question. how do you know that you're... Like, one of my problems, my two... Well, one of many problems, but two of the many problems that I have... <laughs> Poor thing. Is self-doubt, self-doubt, which pulls uh -huh. on the trusting. Yes. And the pushing too hard. Uh-huh. And I don't know, and I, what brought me to meditation and uh, was to try and find that middle way uh -huh. to know that I am not pushing too hard. Right. And I am accepting. And right. I don't know if that and makes any sense. And you're knowing when to do, when to do it. Yes. Yes. Like, so well, that's a, that lifelong, that's a lifelong koan oh. or conundrum. You can't you tell me the answer? Yes. <laughs> just so you can just I tell can. me do this. I can. I can. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I can. But will I? Please. <laughs> <laughs> and will it, more importantly, will it help? It might not help now, but it will help me at some point. I know, definitely. That's why I'm here. You know, right. I really... Yes, you, you, the only um, person, the only authority you can really rely on. I mean, you can ask anyone. You can ask 
the wooden desk that Robert's sitting at. You can ask Robert. You can ask the Buddhist statue. You can ask the Dalai Lama. You can ask Jesus. You can ask philosophers. You know, you can ask the, the smartest person, you know. But the only person you can really ask and find out from is yourself. Whatever yourself means. Your conscious, conscience, your inner wisdom, your spiritual intelligence. Only you know, like, what's too much and what's too little. So according to your story... You said you push too hard, so I guess you don't feel very in, very balanced. So that's a message from you to you. Of course, if you're totally fooling yourself, maybe you don't push too hard. Maybe that's just what your, I don't know, your mate tells you or somebody told you. But we'll take it at face value that you push too hard, which is a common thing many people have. Anybody else have that? Anybody else heard of the middle way? Anybody ha still have that? <laughs> so too much and too little, too hard and not enough. Um, and all of these dichotomies or polarities is part of life. Only you can really decide for you. But not just you, you know, the child, you, the, you know, how about you, the adult, the wise, the inner Buddha, the inner guru, you, like your own inner truth is the one you have to ask. Just like you're the one that has to know whether you're in love or not. Who can you ask whether you're in love? And everybody is here as an adult, more or less, so we've all gone through the stages. So when you're young, you know, you, you ask your friends, you ask your sister, you ask your brother, you ask your mother, you ask your therapist, I don't know, you ask, you ask Jeeves on the computer, I don't know, whoever, you know, you ask. You pray, you ask God, you ask Jesus. People have different go-tos. But finally, who is it that has to decide whether you are in love? Except you, right? You get help from them as you go through the stages of, from infatuation and puppy love to you know, to lust and to whatever love, and then you get to adult, mature love, and then you fall in love, and then, you know, maybe you know you're in love, or the next time you know you're in love. So it's kind of like that. It's not that simple, but... So now I told you the one that you can ask, and you have to ask. Of course, there are others you could ask, like you asked me. That's not the worst idea in the world. It's not the ultimate idea, but, you know, you can ask people that might be helpful or interested in helping you, not interested in exploiting you. You could ask wise people. So if we are seekers, if we're true seekers, we have to be very candid and honest with ourselves and learn how and what we can trust in ourselves. Our, what's the inner guru? What's the inner truth? that we can rely on, that we can ask. Just like you know whether you belong here or not. And I don't mean this in some big, you know, existential. I mean, like, if you decide to leave, you know, you can leave. You're deciding to stay. You know, who, who's, who are you relying on to make that decision? There's a part of you that knows and, and already is your inner guru, let's say, to make it very um, caricature, your inner guru that you rely on, your inner truth, your sense of reality, as an adult that you trust enough to 
you know, go forward. You're not just sitting there like a lump waiting for your mother to tell you it's a school day, you have to get dressed now, and this is what you put on. That's the child stage. Now you're an adult woman, so you make your own decisions, good, bad, and sort in between. So we're in a practice here that is working consciously on awareness, consciousness, mindfulness, discernment, discrimination, clarity, objectivity, all of these things so we can get wiser, so we can ask that inner what wisdom to function, that inner truth, that inner guru, our conscience, whatever it is, our spiritual intelligence, and not just about spiritual things, our inner truth about everything, anything. And then maybe others can, you know, draw sustenance or come drink water at that source too one day. So that's who to ask. And meanwhile, there are many people that say, especially in the spiritual world, you should ha join something, have a teacher, ask the good book. You know, these are better answers than asking that piece of wood probably. But you have to decide, like, which ones can work for you. People go to therapy, people ask their elders, even people who are not older than them, but who seem wise or mature in that area, right? So I hope that you are doing those things. Because it's also easy to fool ourselves. So as we're growing on this path of wisdom, it's good to ask for help and ask others and seek elder guidance. So I hope that's helpful. And what was the other thing you were asked about? There was that and the self-doubt, was that it? Uh, self-doubt and... Um, yes. Well, self-doubt, you know, I mean, if I ask, most people here will put up their hands again, so we don't have to do that, but... We're looking into things like that here, like self, who, who are you really and what self do you doubt? Are you doubting your, you know, you feel like the little girl doubts herself or the woman, I don't know, I just, you know, I can hardly see that far, I'm so old. You know, the, the, the married woman, you doubt your, your motherness. You, you think you're still a child. How can you be a mother and a wife? Or, I don't know, maybe you're a, maybe you're a professional, but you doubt, you, you know, you wonder how you snuck in there. Are you really yeah. valid? It's doubting. I can actually answer that. It's doubting the right decision. But as I say it, it sounds stupid. Sorry, but it's like... No, it does sound stupid. It's doubting making the right decision. And I don't know if there is a right decision or a wrong yeah, decision, but just right. doubting. Yeah, that's the only way we can describe it. Yeah. Doubting, making the right decision. So you decision. get paralyzed about self-doubt yeah. and like, like when you go out of the house, you, can't, you have to go back and check if you turned everything off many times? I'm a teacher. I doubt the fact that um, it took me, it was a hard struggle to become a teacher um, for various different reasons. And then I started teaching and it was hell. For the first, I'm sorry, but it was hell for the first like. Teaching three, is hell. I, mean, <laughs> I know, and then confirm I, it. And then I was like, <laughs> and like, what was I thinking? This was the wrong decision. Like, I'm so stupid. And then the self doubt came in, you know, like because, and it sounds. I'm really, I'm showing my really stupid side, but like, I thought it would be easier. I thought, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do, and it's going to be great. And it was horrible. And I was like, oh my gosh, you see, Venus, you did it again. You made the wrong decision. You know, like, I'm okay, really, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, that, that inner tyrant, that harsh self-talk is, is an issue that one could look at. You know, 
Like, is that really your voice or is that, you know, some other voice like your strict parent or coach or somebody? And do you have to listen to them or is that just, you know, we have many voices in our head, mostly from the past. Maybe we can be more like the kindergarten teacher that just hears the rowdy voices but doesn't, isn't so um, bossed or driven by them. And if there's some good information in there, we can pick it up, but most of it's just a cacophony from the past. You know, you, oh, you always do this. There, you did it again. Then you start flagellating yourself. So this becoming more self-aware is supposed to be helpful in all these areas. But also people go to therapy for that. That's a big subject in therapy. And there are other you know, ways of working, looking into the self and its different parts. So stick with that and try to learn to trust your own judgment and intuition and also refine your judgment and discernment and wisdom so it becomes better and more trustworthy. And try to be gentle with yourself, Venus. You're a beautiful person. You, you know, this self-beating up is not fun to watch. Well, it's kind of fun, but it's painful. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Thank you.